Before we get started with the episode, we wanted to tell you that we're releasing more Zero Waste Challenges in the Deedster app. We're expanding the global challenge to empower and educate people to go zero waste. Calculate your entire CO2 footprint, learn more about the global waste problem, its impact on our economy, nature, health, and most importantly, the changes you can create in your space. As a collective, we can create much-needed large-scale impact. Through the challenge, you'll get inspired to quit using single-use items, help recycle e-waste, eliminate food waste, and even influence businesses and politics and much more. Deedster and the challenges are all for free. Download the Deedster app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and come and join us over at Deedster. Hi there, I'm Evelina Lundqvist. Hi, I'm Malin Lett. You're listening to Love Zero Waste. Lately, we've been talking a lot about ocean plastic pollution and microplastics on the show. And we'll continue with that today, but from a slightly different perspective. This episode is all about activism, awareness building and science, all in the shape and form of expeditions. Moreover, this episode is about pivoting, changing your ideas and plans when the situation demands it. And I think we've all had a lot of that lately. Malin, when I say the word expedition, what do you associate with that? Wow, I'm thinking about the extreme, Sabrina, like wind that's so strong that you cannot even stand up or your tent is blowing away or sun that's burning your skin or snow until like your waist or like <laughs> up, up to your elbows <laughs> or maybe wild oceans uh, with waves massive and crazy making your uh, like boat or whatever you are on floating device will make it tip. Oh yeah, that's yeah, drama. I think extremes. I'm actually thinking something similar, like going to the North Pole, looking for old <laughs> sediments in the ice sheet while your sledge dogs are freezing the paws off, something like that. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's also kind of extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, of course, raising a ton of money uh, before you go and probably also risking your life. Yep. Yeah. That's where we're and at. And also uh, because you need a lot of equipment. True. But expedition, as we've learned now in the conversation of the recent episode, expeditions can also be something else. Sure, whether small or large scale expeditions, they are an extraordinary way to explore the planet. But an expedition can also take place around the corner from where you live, on waterways in the region where you live, for example, or a little bit further away. But still, planning and going on an expedition isn't necessarily as unattainable as we might think it is. In this episode of Love Zero Waste, we're talking to Christian Shaw, co-founder of Plastic Tides. Plastic Tides organize expeditions on stand-up paddle boards to collect water samples to add to the global body of knowledge regarding microplastics in oceans and lakes. Moreover, they're actively using the stand-up paddling board expeditions to raise the public's awareness on the topic and to raise funds for the Global Youth Mentorship Program. 
So I think we need your expertise here, Marlin. Uh, can you please explain what a SUP, a stand-up paddling board is? I think you even <laughs> own one, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. However, I'm still like an amateur, like newbie okay. uh, on the SUP. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's experience. more than what I am, I, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, so SUP is the short uh, wording for stand-up paddle board. Um, and it's uh, basically uh, some sort of um, board that helps you float mm -hmm. above the water. So you're not under the water, you're above the water. And then you have awesome. a big, like a long paddle to get forward. You're standing okay. up on the board. Okay. It's uh, very stable. And then there are like two main different categories of the uh, standard paddle boards. So you have the inflatable okay. uh, and you have the solid ones. So the inflatable, you can easily pack in a bag. It's still a big bag, mm -hmm. but you can pack it uh, and bring it to wherever you would like to do any standard paddle board expedition. And the solid board would then need like an ordinary bring your surfboard logistic thing. You need to think a lot of where you can uh, store them and such. But the inflatables uh -huh. ones, the one that I had, I have, is easy to, to bring. Then there are shorter ones for fitness and yoga. There are super long ones, like up to four meter and even more What? for expeditions. Yeah. Okay. Have you tried so you one can, of those? Yeah, I've tried them and they are really cool. Comparing them with a shorter one, which could be easier to turn around quickly. This one is more, you need to plan and you need to like, it's more like a ship. Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> like a, a, a vessel, okay. a floating vessel. Um, but you can bring a lot of equipment, tents, sleeping bags, kitchens. I even saw people bringing a big barbecue, like the one that's one and a half meter okay. wide, you know, with the gas. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, the LPG thing. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So you can even bring up to three people on those. They're also family SUPs, so they are more like an inflatable mattress or solid mattress. Uh, uh -huh. But then you can bring like five people. Uh, oh, so wow. all, all, all persons on the board could have one paddle each and then you can help like a canoe, but without walls. Okay, I really need to Google some <laughs> images of this. It's like a completely new t territory for me. It's fantastic to br bring an entire barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but uh, it's. I mean, I, I think it opens up for uh, accessibility because then you can bring heavy equipment to uh. Uh, places where which you wouldn't access landwise. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's like, if if you dare to bring your barbecue uh, to an island, uh, then. Uh, you, it's possible you can do that. Okay. So that could be an expedition as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, suddenly the, this whole episode makes sense. <laughs> awesome. Bring your barbecue, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you for this <laughs> lecture. Awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so Plastic Tides was founded in 2015. And Christian and his team, they started to organize the very first expedition back then, circumnavigating the island of Bermuda. Over the course of 10 days, the team lived off their paddle boards, going from beach to beach, along the way researching ocean plastics. Here's Christian Shaw, co-founder of Plastic Tides. Bermuda is in the Atlantic Ocean, about 500 miles straight out from the Carolinas, and is also the nearest landmass to the North Atlantic gyre. There's five major oceanic gyres, and all of those areas concentrate water and 
aquatic sea life and also plastic pollution uh, into you know, specific areas. So Bermuda ends up with a lot of plastic pollution uh, that's non-domestic coming from the ocean. You can really visually see the effects of plastics in the ocean and also the effect of the ocean on plastics over time. Before their expedition, the team had developed a trawl to collect samples from the surface water. The trawl was designed to float behind the SUP. Christian and his team designed this trial device together with their partners at the Ocean Project in Wilmington, North Carolina. We were also taking water samples for the Adventure Scientists Global Microplastics Project, which has created a map with thousands of different data points of microplastics from anywhere from Bermuda to Hawaii to Alpine lakes. So when we set out, the goal of Plastic Tides and our first expedition was to bring attention to the issue of plastic pollution in a new and unique and engaging way and also inspire young people Uh, to learn about plastic pollution and conservation and sustainability and to get involved. Our approach from the very beginning was to connect with youth, and we did that through this fun, engaging content and uh, these personalities as adventurers and scientists and bridging the gap between knowledge and you know experience. How come you started in Bermuda? What are your connections to Bermuda? The initial inspiration was at a National Geographic Young Explorers Grant Workshop at Cornell University in October of 2012. I had been learning about this issue of plastic pollution, kind of had my eyes open to this great Pacific garbage patch, you know, the size of Texas, and had seen some stuff through the work of five gyres in my oceanography class. And so I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, whoa, like how come nobody knows about this? And then happened to go to this, this you know, Explorers Grant workshop. And I'm also an avid kite surfer. So at that event, a few of us had the opportunity to pitch ideas to the group. And I uh, pitched an idea to travel to the Pacific and locate this What I was picturing was like a garbage dump on the surface of the ocean and bring kiteboarding equipment and maybe a hazmat suit and basically kiteboard across or through this patch and get aerial photography footage to bring huge attention to the issue. And uh, quickly learned that That was not possible for a number of reasons, but foremost being that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is not something that you can see from the air. It's not something that you could even potentially see from the side of a boat if you're not looking closely. You know, the plastic pollution is more like a plastic smog stratified throughout the water column with maybe some visible parts here and there. You know, that, that the visual there just wasn't a possibility. And also, of course, the logistics of going to the middle of the Pacific were pretty challenging, too. And so what started out as that trip uh, was distilled down into our paddleboard expedition around Bermuda. And we chose Bermuda because Bermuda is positioned within the North Atlantic gyre. Yeah, it was just a logistically more feasible location. 
Could you describe the area around the SUP paddling starting point? What does it look like? Bermuda is really beautiful. It's a small island, only 21 square miles. It's right out there in the center of the Atlantic Ocean, and it sits on a reef shelf. If you're looking at the island from the air, it's a really large sort of turquoise circle or oval that represents what I imagine is the top of an ancient volcano. This is sort of the reef shelf, and then the island of Bermuda is this smaller, more of a fishhook-shaped island that sits on there. And along the north, and particularly northeastern facing side of the island, the reef shelf extends out really far. So on the southeastern side, the island gets really close to the edge of the shelf, and so it really drops off quickly into deep water. We launched from an area that was on the edge between the reef and where it starts to drop off. So uh, the first few hours of paddling during that trip were along really shallow water with you know coral right underneath. And we saw a manta ray, uh, which is cool because we had our manta troll with us. So is the manta troll just as big as a manta ray or is it smaller? Ours was significantly smaller. It is significantly smaller, I should say. The ones that you see folks like Five Gyres using off of research vessels could be potentially as big as a manta ray. Ours is only a half a meter wide at the mouth. So uh, we designed them to come apart and pack down into one of the pontoons. Since that trip, the team has iterated their first trial trawl a number of times for different expeditions. Our next project after that Bermuda trip, we came home and the issue of plastic microbeads entering our waterways came on our radar. So we made some adjustments to the trawl so that it would run better over the water and stay closer to the surface. And then we set out on an expedition paddling from uh, my hometown of Ithaca, New York, towards Albany, the state capital, using that trawl to sample the surface water, looking for plastic microbeads. The plastic microbeads issue really got some attention in 2014 and 2015 after research that Five Gyres and the Great Lakes Plastic Pollution Research Lab did on Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and the Great Lakes, which are considered marine environments. And so they found really high concentrations of plastic microbeads. They linked back to primarily exfoliating face wash in their samples from those lakes. This was really popular throughout the early 2000s and into the mid-2000s. Companies putting plastic into their products that was initially intended to go down the drain and eventually into whatever uh, you know, waterways and the ocean without the capacity for them to really be filtered out by any treatment plant. They had done that research on the Great Lakes and we saw an opportunity to paddle from our hometown up our lake and then through the Erie Canal system to the capital of Albany whilst actually taking samples along the way, which we then analyzed at the Great Lakes Plastic Pollution Research Lab in SUNY Fredonia under the guidance of Dr. Sam Mason and definitively proved the existence of 
uh, plastic microbeads in inland waterways for the first time in the United States. And so from there, that set us on an amazing uh, journey over the next year with a coalition of organizations that came together to uh, pass a patchwork of different bans, which culminated in the Microbead Free Waters Act of 2015. I, I guess you have learned a lot from all of this. What would you say are like your key learning, your key insight along the way? The biggest takeaway from that entire project was the value of collaboration. It was our introduction into the larger space around sustainability and conservation organizations. At that time, plastic pollution was still relatively unknown. You know, Sky News and the BBC hadn't done their feature on plastic pollution yet. National Geographic, Planet of Plastic hadn't come out. It was remarkable how all of these different groups who actually at that time, many of them were not specifically focused on plastic pollution, came together around this one issue with microbeads and rallied local engagement all across the country on a number of different levels. What's your personal motivation to organize these expeditions? My personal motivation around my work with Plastic Tides and sustainability is, I think, deeply rooted in my upbringing and my education. I've been fortunate enough to have parents who spent a lot of time in the outdoors and exposed me to the ocean and outdoor spaces and the natural world from a really young age. For me, it was just sort of a, a slow accumulation of knowledge and understanding as I came through my, my teen years, particularly around appreciation for the natural world and all the threats that it's facing, and particularly things like climate change and plastic pollution. From a pretty young age, I felt that what my life would be was something around, you know, addressing those problems. Mm. Um, just envisioning sleeping at beaches and paddling in the ocean or in lakes does sound wonderful. But I guess that you have experienced a lot of adventure as well. Like, I don't know, equipment failure, rough weather. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any stories to share? <laughs> it's funny you ask that because you're not the first one to, to <laughs> think that maybe it, it sounds a bit fantastical and maybe even like a fun vacation at times, but it's it's definitely far from it. In Bermuda, we had issues on our third day. We were in some pretty heavy ocean conditions for the equipment we were on paddleboards. And, you know, we're taking a lot of water over our decks and, and our gear, but everything was all right. And uh, and then out of the blue, one of our, our boards, which had our primary cameraman on it, completely flipped. We found out later that that board had been taking on water, as with all of our other boards, because... Our sponsor for the boards, who we love dearly and uh, makes amazing equipment at that time, was just starting out and didn't give the boards the appropriate amount of time to actually cure. They were brand new, just had just built them for us, and they had not been able to cure properly before going on the shipping container to Bermuda and essentially had leaks all around them. And so 
that entire trip, actually, we were fixing our boards and, and emptying them out and trying to patch them. And, and just right then, in that first moment, my partner, Gordon, went into the water with his Canon 7D, which was our primary shooting camera for the trip. And that got fried along with all the lenses he had on him. And I happened to just catch with the corner of my eye something black dropping to the bottom it turned out that it was our waterproof camera well our our not waterproof camera our other camera in a waterproof housing and that had slipped off his deck and went down to the bottom in maybe 40 feet of water oh no but i was fortunately i was able to get a mask and and i think one flipper and (laughs) (laughs) one get down there and it and it landed on a patch of sand, which was really lucky because we were in an area with like, you know, reef and like little trenches and caves. It could have easily been just disappeared in in the mess, but it landed on a nice patch of beautiful sand. And we've actually been back to that spot since and admired it. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I got the, got the camera back and ended up being the camera that we used for most of the rest of the shots in that trip as well as our next significant expedition and our documentary that we made about that expedition. Wow. But did did you ever feel scared? No, I never felt scared. However, on the next expedition in upstate New York, just because of the timing of that trip, we ended up doing it in early November. We set off with what was just an Indian summer, beautiful, sunny weather, you know, paddling with our shirts off and and it was great. But a few days in to that trip, we got hit by a polar vortex, which was like very unseasonably Arctic cold. I don't know if you're familiar with what a polar vortex is, but we went from experiencing weather in maybe the the 60s Fahrenheit so I guess we're talking like you know the teens to uh, sub-zero temperatures within a couple of days but we had a mission to complete and we had the equipment we were prepared for that cold because we knew it was supposed to get cold we didn't know how cold we did have one pretty harrowing experience that we've documented in our in our movie the canal where we were we're trying to cover ground late at night and got into a pretty scary hypothermia situation, which we fortunately mm-hmm. found some cover and got ourselves off the water and got safe. That was probably one of the scariest experiences on expeditions and stuff that I've had to date. Hi, I'm Marlin. If you're a regular listener to a free smashing packed with zero waste and circular economy phenomena and news podcast, we need your support to create more podcast episodes with even richer content. Check out our offer on Patreon or through PayPal. Consider making a one-time or a monthly donation. You find the links in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening. Now, back to the episode with our guest, Christian Shaw, co-founder of Plastic Tides. Were you surprised by the amount of, of plastics that you found on the beaches and then also of the, the water samples that you did? Yeah, I was surprised, actually. It was my first time traveling to Bermuda, my first time experiencing ocean plastic. We had an opportunity to paddle 
fairly far offshore at times and there's sargassum is a really important aquatic plant in the sargasso sea which is there that part of uh, the ocean and the gyre and so the interaction between plastics and sargassum was really interesting to observe Mm -hmm. because of course you know things that are floating on the surface tend to aggregate together so you find these windrows or drift lines of sargassum plastics in between them and actually just the number of like large identifiable plastics that we would encounter out there from a milk crate to a plastic water bottle that had come off of a Chinese shipping vessel Mm -hmm. most likely to oil court plastic containers with bite marks from trigger fish out of them Mm. and that was also really interesting the number of pieces that we found like the larger pieces that had the the signs of fish primarily trigger fish coming up and feeding on them how can you see that do they have specific bite marks or what is the how can you know that there's not a specific shape necessarily that you see but it's the way that the edge of the plastic is frayed from numerous bite marks. Hmm. It's pretty obvious. Did you ever feel like overwhelmed by all the plastics that you found in the ocean? Or did you feel like, oh, wow, I'm on a mission. I can do this. A little bit of both. It's hard not to be a little bit overwhelmed, especially some of the areas that we passed, particularly on the southeastern side of the island. That part of the island also faces directly towards the center of the gyre. There were some areas where the plastic was really packed in there. We've also, since that trip, done cleanups around the area that we launched for our trip, which catches a lot of plastic. Coming back to the same places and seeing a lot of plastic is overwhelming, but it's important to just remind yourself that that's a localized thing that you're seeing in one place. Although it can be overwhelming and upsetting, it's it's not how it is everywhere, and that's what motivates us to do the work that we're doing. Yeah, You're gathering plastics or microplastics with this manta troll, and then you have it on the back of your stand a paddleboard does it get heavy then sure when you're using a manta trawl like we had each time we pull the trawl we're doing that for a specified distance and then we're actually taking this piece that if you were to envision the trawl it's the net part of the trawl is tapered from the mouth into in our case, a plastic, like a PVC cylinder that has a certain size mesh in it. Basically everything, the water and everything that's smaller than that mesh size is gonna be going out. And then after we pull the the trawl out of the water, we remove that part, which is called the cot end, and then dump that sample with as little water as possible, ideally, into a jar. That's what we take to the lab. And so then in the lab, you take that sample, and in the case of our microbead research, we actually had to 
use a really concentrated hydrogen peroxide to oxidize away all of the organic material through a fairly lengthy process until all we were left with was plastic and exoskeletons and threads and things of that nature. Something that we could look through under a microscope and, and clearly identify different things and eventually the microbeads themselves. But the goal is never to be collecting a large quantity of plastics. It's more about collecting a representative sample and as many of those as possible, ideally from different locations. Mm, yeah. And I, I remember in one of the videos that you wanted to understand if there was a correlation between the amount of visible plastics and microplastics. Yes. For the most part, that's that, that yeah. there seems to be a correlation there. But it's not always, you don't, but but it's, it's not mutually exclusive though. So for instance, you can easily also find large concentrations of microplastics with no visible plastics. Talking about expeditions and adventures, now you're organizing an SUP paddling relay expedition across the planet. What uh, impact are you hoping to create with a relay expedition? Yeah, we're really excited about this project because, as you know, expeditions are at the core of our, our organization and our ethos. And after canceling the last of our youth trips this summer due to COVID-19, we were hit with the inspiration to, instead of abandoning expeditioning altogether this year, actually bring the global community together for uh, a virtual expedition to support our youth leaders through our global youth mentorship program. The idea with the SUP paddling relay expedition across the planet is to bring together the global paddling community. It's going to be a year-long endeavor. To participate, you can go out and paddle on your local waterways and then visit Plastic Tide's website and donate four US dollar for every one mile that you paddled. A classic and bring your friends. You can participate from anywhere in the world on your own or a borrowed or rented SUP. The purpose of the initiative is to raise funds for their mentorship program. One of the things Christian is most excited about is Plastic Tide's focus on youth and their youth leaders. Since the first few expeditions that we did around Bermuda and then in upstate New York and subsequent expeditions in Bermuda and a few other places around the world, we've been really focused on our youth expeditions. We've been leading kids through the same process that we went through on our first expedition since the summer of 2015. Uh, last year, we took a group into the Adirondack Uh, state park in upstate New York, which is the largest state park in the country. We're looking at the impacts of humans in sort of pristine wilderness and also doing beach surveys and cleanups. For that trip, we sort of set the, the guardrails, so to speak, and then let some of our more experienced students who've worked with us for a number of years take on the specifics of the actual route. Then, of course, we come through and make sure everything it looks good and is going to work out logistically and, and is safe. We've been able to do that the last couple of years with a couple of our more advanced youth leaders, which is really exciting. Over the past two years, we've narrowed our focus exclusively into our work with youth and 
our youth expeditions. And then the other side of that is the global youth mentorship program. But that's what we've been most excited about and focused on particularly over the last year. We connect motivated students in middle or high school who want to undertake a project in their school or community that's going to solve plastic pollution or climate change issues upstream. These are quantifiable, scalable, long-lasting solutions that students are implementing, and they can range from replacing plastic utensils in their cafeteria with a sustainable alternative to testing and upgrading their school's hydration infrastructure to planting an orchard around their school and regenerating the landscape. There's a variety of different projects that students can choose from. And then also we have students that come to us with their own unique project that they want to pursue. And what we do is connect those students with adults who are interested in helping these students, these youth leaders reach their potential. So with this global expedition, virtual global expedition, and we're hoping to raise $100,000 to support the work of 100 different youth leaders in the 2020-2021 school year. We already have over 20 youth leaders and half a dozen mentors on board with the program. So we've got a really good start. Christian, talking about making change that lasts, what upstream actions do make this change, fighting ocean plastics? That's a great question. You know, I think it's important for, you know, everyone to walk the walk. And, you know, it's been really fun for me just becoming educated about plastic pollution and then embarking on what I like to consider uh, my personal zero waste voyage. I am not perfect and I would be hard pressed to believe that anyone out there is perfect when it comes to living zero waste. And so it's always a voyage and a pursuit towards being better and finding new solutions and learning new tricks. I carry that with me every day. I've got my, you know, just for instance, the basics, my water bottle, sitting next to me. I actually have two. I've got my coffee mug and my water bottle and my utensil kit. I think that it's important to connect with personal responsibility and sustainability. I like to look at it as the idea of voting with my dollars for the future that I want to live in. You know, all over the world, I think everyone can agree that politics and creating change through government Uh, policy is really, really important. The democratic process is really important. We should all be participating in it and do what we can to support it in the way that we feel is appropriate. But at the end of the day, it is flawed and it also is slow moving. So the fastest way, in my opinion, to affect change is through markets. And how you do that is by supporting things that you want to see more of. So every day we have many opportunities to make little decisions about things that we want to buy. And every time we buy something, we're basically casting our ballot, our vote for more of that thing being created. I try and just keep that in mind as I go about my day to day. And I'm not always able to vote with my dollars for you know, what I would prefer, but 
I also just am real with myself about that and sit with that. And, you know, when I can, I do. Wow, that is all very inspiring. Molly, mm -hmm. do we have a call to action for this episode? Yes, but a different one. So the call to action for this episode is for anyone that will be spending time outdoors on the rivers or the lakes or the oceans to connect with any research institute and ask them if they need any samples. Could you collect anything that will help them in their research? I like that idea. That's a really cool suggestion. Yeah, and, and we could also like broaden that even more. If you're spending time outdoors, could be on water, it could be on the ground. There might be samples that you could collect as well on the ground. Mm, yeah, so definitely do some research, maybe at the university where you live uh, or other civil society organizations that are uh, doing research. Contact them and see if you can help out somehow to gather data that uh, can help save nature, uh, mitigate climate change, for example. There's a lot that we can do that we don't think about, maybe. Yeah. And then I think we have a call to action for Love Zero Waste podcast, which is for us to join the paddle relay, Evelina. Yeah. <laughs> I will get out on my board. I know you have a sister that's very good yeah, at SUP. Yeah, that's true. If mm -hmm. if the, this pandemic comes to an end, if we're all vaccinated <laughs> and I can go visit her, then I will, I will definitely borrow her paddling board and uh, go for a little, <laughs> a <Spin>. little hike <laughs> on the well, what, what is it called? You take the board, you don't take the board on a spin, right? You take it on a... Um, swim. <laughs> swim. <laughs> That's when you fall off yeah, the board. Yeah, take the board on a swim. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. If you want to get in contact with Christian and Plastic Tides or participate in the global stand-up paddling relay expedition, check out their website, plastictides.com and Plastic Tides on Instagram and Facebook. Do it now. We'd love to get your feedback on the podcast. Did you learn something new in this episode? What topics do you want us to tackle in the podcast? Let us know and hit that subscribe button on our podcast in the app where you're listening. For sources and our guests' website and social media handles, please check out the show notes. As always, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Our jingle is done by Michael Steinkellner of Merlin Sound. Love Zero Waste is a collaboration between Circulus and The Good Tribe. We're always open to ideas and collaborations. Visit us on thegoodtribe.com and circulus.biz or Love Zero Waste on Instagram and Facebook. And spread the love using hashtag Love Zero Waste. I'm Evelina Lundqvist. And I'm Marlene Lett. You've listened to Love Zero Waste.